Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy, howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. First, I want to thank the patrons over at patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. They are the ones who are making this possible for you to enjoy this podcast. They are providing small recurring monthly donations to foot the bills. And patrons, I appreciate you. I also appreciate anyone who visits my website over at bradleylaird.com and for whatever their motivation might be, purchases one or more of my instructional videos, ebooks, and courses. They're all there at bradleylaird.com. So enough of the commercials and thanks for this episode. Um, I've been playing mandolin a little bit more here recently, trying to knock the rust off, as I said in the in the last episode. And I just want to thank the guy again who sent me the armrest. I'd never used a, an armrest on a mandolin, and I just stuck it on there, and it felt really strange at first. But I'm getting really used to it, and I really like it. So you can go back to my episode called Creative Thanks, that episode where I discussed uh, the guy just sending me that out of the blue to say thanks for the podcast. All right. I was uh, digging around through some of my vast archives of, uh, or I should say my vast clutter of books and papers and computer files. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know how this stuff has survived some, some of this, but I ran across, I was digging through some books and I was trying to locate some tunes that I had written and I knew I had jotted them down somewhere and just scrounging around trying to find these tunes because Jackson, my son, was asking me for them. He was like, I could arrange this for orchestra and that for, uh, you know, dig me up, um, you know, give me all your tunes and let me see what I can do with them. So I was scratching around and I found a printout of one of my old newsletters. And I said, you know, when I started the podcast that, you know, the purpose of the podcast is to talk about those additional things that, you know, probably no one would ever pay for, but you know, there's still valuable information and content and I'm doing it in an audio form. Well, I used to do this in a printed form. After I uh, created uh, the book, Mandolin Masterclass and Mandolin Training Camp, and I was right in the heart of you know writing and creating a lot of these instructional materials, like the banjo instruction course and things like that. This is back in 2004, 2005, 2006, and I had started writing scripts and filming videos and all sorts of things. So I was really heavy in the creative mode to try to transmit some of what I had figured out over you know, 30 years of, of the hard way and trying to make it easier for you know, people who are coming along. And, and a lot of this, you know, really sprouted out of the fact that I was teaching private lessons. So I needed to prepare material for those students, and I wasn't entirely happy with 
the typical instructional material that I was finding. You know, there was a lot of star power transcriptions available and a lot of, um, you know, method books that taught the mechanics of playing but didn't really talk much about uh, theory and improv. And then, of course, there were theory and improv books that were mostly oriented towards other forms of music. So, anyway, to make a long story short, as I was digging around, I ran across a printout of my March 2006 Mando University News. And I want to make sure you understand that all over these newsletters, it says Bradley Laird's Mando University and MandoUniversity.com. I did not renew that address. I have no idea who may, in fact, presently own and occupy a domain called MandoUniversity.com. I had it for a while, and I decided to just combine the various uh, domains into just one. Uh, so everything that I ever produced in other domains, like, like FreemandolinVideos.com, like MandoUniversity.com, all got moved to BradleyLaird.com. So everything I'm... If you look at these newsletters and you see MandoUniversity.com, don't go there. Everything is presently at BradleyLaird.com. And there's no way I'm going back and modifying and editing, you know, newsletters from 13 and a half years ago just to change that. So just be aware of that. Okay. In those newsletters, I would try to, you know, just give some additional tips, some things that weren't talked about in the videos, things that weren't talked about in the books, in the courses. And so sometimes I just have an idea, something maybe I was talking to a student about that past week, you know. And I would just write a little article and put it in the newsletter. And I had this mailing list of email addresses and physical addresses of people who had purchased any of my books. And I would just send it to them. You know, here it is. You want it? Download it, read it. And I hope it's useful to you. I found this one. I thought I would just um, read and possibly paraphrase a little bit of this first article that is in, I'm not sure which, I, I know it's March 2006, and I know it's not the first issue. It's somewhere in the middle of the, the series of, of uh, newsletters that I put out. And I stopped doing that and then gradually work my way around to doing the podcast and also writing blog articles on my, on my site. In the March 2006, I have the headline, Right Hand Exercises Lurk Everywhere. And look, everybody always talks about the right hand being so important. Discuss banjo playing with people, and everybody says, ah, oh, man, it's all in your right hand. Talk to any mandolin player. Ah, oh, man, it's all, it's all about the right hand. It's all about the right hand. Talk to any fiddle player. And they say, it's all in that bow and arm. It's all in that bow and arm. This is common throughout, and I believe that the reason that the right hand, and I'm talking about right-handed players who hold the pick or the bow in the right hand, 
the reason, I, I think the reason the right hand is so crucial is because it is, it has 95% of the control of the timing of the music and the rhythm. True, your left hand does contribute to that, especially when you're doing slides, pull-offs, hammer-ons, and the left hand has to work slightly in advance of the right. At times, it has to be there early. Like if you're going to play a note on the fifth fret, before the right hand strikes a string or picks the string or bows the string, the left hand fingertip already has to be there in advance. So sometimes the left hand is working ahead of the right. Normally it will. If, if you play together, it's just going to be... You've got to have that finger planted before you strike the string. So the left hand's working in advance. But then when you do pull-offs and you do slides and you do hammer-ons, it is not working in advance. It is then, the left hand is then working in time. You want your pull-off note to be on time, not early. And not late either. So... The left hand works ahead and in time, but the right hand is steady. That's, that's the idea. It is the time keeper. It is the time maker. So let me just read you uh, bits and pieces of, of this article. And it, the purpose of the article is to show you that everybody always says there, you know, you need to play right hand exercises. Work on your right hand, work on your right hand, work on your right hand. I say it. Everybody says it. A lot of people don't do it, you know. What they do is they practice tunes and they practice, you know, both hands all the time. And I'm not saying don't do that. But I am saying isolating the right hand can help you identify problems in how your right hand is functioning. So let's, let me just read this thing to you. Starting at the first paragraph, it says, If you have read my books, you have seen some right-hand exercises that I devised. Let me recap a couple of ideas which are probably obvious to you. One, working on right-hand exercises with all open strings allows you to concentrate on just one hand without the mental interference of thinking about the left hand. Number two, since such a huge proportion of your overall timing is a result of what the right hand does, focusing solely on right hand move movements can be very beneficial. I don't mean to imply that the left hand is not important, but that is for another article on another day. Next paragraph. If you have played some of the exercises for the right hand that I included in the books, and when I say the books, I'm talking about Mandolin Masterclass, Mandolin Training Camp, uh, the Flint Hill Scrolls, the Mandolin Instruction Course, the Banjo Instruction Course, all of these books have right hand exercises in them. And that, so that's what I'm talking about here. And it could be other method books that you own, like Earl's book. Open Earl's book, there's right-hand exercises in it. Everybody does it. But unfortunately, um, 
many students don't spend much time doing them. So back to the article. If you have played some of the exercises for the right hand that I included in the books, you will no doubt have found some of them very beneficial. Let me suggest another way to create very useful right hand exercises, and it is very easy to do. So I'm going to tell you how to make up your own right hand exercises, and they are right hand exercises that are perfect for your needs, and let me explain. Continuing with the article, take a section of a song that you are practicing. So take a song that you're working on and tab it out. And I'm specifically talking about tablature here. Um, I won't explain why that is true, but take a section of a song you are practicing and tab it out. Now make a second copy of that section and simply change all of the fret numbers to zeros. You have now removed the left hand from the picture. This will allow you to focus on the right hand pick movements while, while holding your moon, moonshine jug in the left hand or a Diet Coke. Your choice of poison is your own personal preference. Seriously, though, by taking the left-hand considerations out of the picture, you can practice the right-hand pick direction and string-changing movements to the fullest possible extent. And, as I always say, use the metronome. See my books for a full-fledged browbeating on that subject. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, here are two examples. The first is the first two measures of the old fiddle tune Mississippi Sawyer. So right there I insert tablature for mandolin. You, this could be banjo, this could be dobra, this could be anything you're, you're playing. This could be fiddle. This could be upright bass. I put in the first two measures of Mississippi Sawyer with the numbers. So it's saying five, five, two, five, five, two, five, five, two, five, seven, five, two. And then I say, and now, to reveal the embedded right-hand pattern, I've converted all the numbers to zeros. Practice the rhythm and pick motion of this. Until this is good, why bother with the left-hand notes? And then I print the exact same rhythm and the exact same string changes, or in, in banjo you'd think the exact same rolls, or right-hand patterns, however you want to think about it, but it's just all zeros. So when it, and I print that there, and it, it looks like, wow, that's just da 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 on one string. I mean, that's a that is a perfect right-hand exercise, and you don't have to worry about are you hitting the notes with the left hand. Practice that. Get that really good. Then put your left-hand notes in. That's what. That's the point of this. And the beauty of this kind of thing is if you grab two random measures out of all the songs and breaks and solos and stuff that you're trying to learn how to play, you're going to have a colossal array of different right-hand exercises. 
because some of them are going to stay on this string and some of them are going to jump from this string to this string. Some of them are going to jump on an upstroke and some are going to jump on a downstroke. There's going to be string crossing. No need to sit around making up exercises. The songs already have the exercises in them. Just play the song with your left hand in your pocket or holding the moonshine jug. Just play the song with your right hand and get that rhythm nailed. Then I go on in the next column. This next example consists of the first two measures of my composition entitled McDonough. And that's a mandolin tune I wrote. Just like the previous example, I have simply converted all of the notes in tablature to zeros for practicing the right hand. And this one's a little more, a little more elaborate because that Mississippi Sawyer example all, both measure one and measure two were all played. Every note played on the first string. This McDonough, the notes are alternating back and forth between the second and third string. But the thing is, as soon as you zero out all the tab, just make it all zeros, you're presented with a wonderful right hand rhythm, string changing, pick control, timing exercise and you don't have to think about your left hand. And if that side of your body is working very well, imagine how much easier it will be when you begin to put the left hand in. And if you notice that when you put the left hand in, that the right hand falls apart, your problem is in your left hand. Or I guess it's your problem is in your integration of the right and left hands. And I would say at that point, Slow down. That, you know, slowing down is almost the cure for practically everything. Um, if you can slow things down, you can often do things that you would be unable to do faster. Now, I will admit there are certain things that require speed and quickness. I, I'm going to give you that. But I think you get my point. If you're making mistakes, slow down a little bit. Okay, let's finish this article, then I'll move on to the next topic. This is back to my Mando University News article. It says, I say, by the way, if you like the first 16 notes of this song, talking about McDonough, you might like the rest of it too. I am currently assembling a little book of original mandolin tunes that I have written, and this one will definitely be in it. <laughs> you can ignore everything here. Uh, if you'd like to hear a version, go to cdbaby.com slash ponyexpress. By the way, that is not there anymore. Um, and you can hear an MP3 of the song. That is not true anymore. We used to sell our band CDs on CD Baby. We do not anymore. But that song, uh, Tune McDonough, was on the Pony Express CD Messenger. But I will tell you how you can get that. Um, I digitized the Messenger CD by Pony Express, and it includes this song and, I don't know, 10 or 12 other songs. And I put it on my Patreon page and for patrons only. So you can... Uh, become a patron, you can, you can go over there and kick in two bucks a month as a Bradley Laird patron, patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. 
And when you do that, you will be, that will unlock for you the patron-only posts, and one of them is the download of this album. So you can get the album that we used to pedal for 12 to 15 bucks. You could chip in two bucks and download it and get it for two bucks. <laughs> and I suppose you could even cancel your Patreon uh, donation um, right after that if you wanted to, if you're that big of a tightwad or you're that hurting for money. So don't go to CD Baby to get this. Uh, go to the Patreon page. Okay, and continuing wrapping up this article. Now, back to the point of the article. Take sections of songs that are giving you trouble and use this technique to isolate the right-hand part. You might even be surprised to discover that many left-hand problems or what you think are left-hand problems have right-hand difficulties at their root. Think on that a while. And let me explain what I was getting at there in case what you think isn't what I was thinking. Let's say you're flubbing some note, and because you're fretting a note with the left hand, let's say you got to put your ring finger down on the fifth fret at a certain time so that you can play a nice clean note with the right hand. It's possible that your lousy right-hand rhythm is what's spoiling an otherwise perfect left-hand note. In other words, if you're, let's say your right hand hits the string too early and hits it at that exact moment when the left fingertip is attempting to set up for the note, but it's not quite ready yet because it's not time for the note, but you've already hit the note with your right hand. So bad right-hand timing can sabotage the work that your left hand is doing, if you follow my, my drift there. The reverse is true, too. I mean, late left-hand notes, um, um, left-hand notes that are not uh, accurate in timing and physical placement and pressure will foul up what, you know all the good work that your right hand is doing. So that's all I'm talking about there. All right, so what else have I got on tap here? Oh, well, while I have the newsletter, well, just continue with this newsletter. And by the way, I will on the show notes for this episode. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or you're seeing this pop up in the, in the uh, RSS feeds on Malin Cafe or wherever you happen to be finding this, just a reminder, every single episode of Grass Talk Radio, the podcast. All of them are available at bradleylaird.com. So you go there, and the very first banner at the top says Grass Talk Radio. You click that, and you'll be presented with a list of every single episode. As I've said, you could begin with episode one, listen to them all, while driving 55 from Montauk Point in Long Island all the way across the country, all the way to San Diego. And you wouldn't be done listening to them when you arrived in San, San Diego. So there's a lot of stuff there. I have uh, yacked and talked about this stuff for many, many hours. So it's all there. But when you click on one of the links of the individual lessons, 
uh, not lessons, podcasts. So you go down to, you know, podcast episode 15, click that. That's the show notes for that episode. And sometimes I include little extra things there. Uh, links to things I was talking about. Uh, maybe a little picture of something I mentioned. You know, like when I was talking about, uh, there was an episode I was talking about doing this show with the Tom T. Hall band. If you go to the show notes page for that episode, you actually see the photograph, the actual photograph that uh, someone took of us standing there next to Tom T. Hall backstage, July 4th, 1980. Uh, so, if you're not going to the show notes pages, you're missing little tidbits of extra stuff, visual things, and handy links. Because if you're listening to this in your car, or you've already gone to bed and you're just listening through an earbud or something, you know, scratching down these links to things may not be easy for you, but it's always there on the show notes. So, having said all that, I'm going to put a link on the show notes page for this episode that you are now listening to, I'm going to put a link to this archive of all these old Mando University news newsletters that I produced. And they, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, they are primarily oriented towards the mandolin player, not the banjo player. This was Mando University news. But even you banjo players and fiddle players and whatever, you still might find them interesting. Okay, so, but it is... Mando-centric. All right. Next thing I want to do today, and do you remember being in school? Surely you do. <laughs> Some of you may actually still be in school. I mean formal school. I consider myself permanently in school. If I'm not learning something new each day, I'm doing something wrong, you know, because you never learn at all. There's always something else that you don't know. And there's a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things I do know. There's a, there's a lot more things I don't know. So every day is school. But I'm talking about back in, you know, Mr. Kennedy's fourth grade class. I remember going in there. And most days I, I was excited to go there. Come in there. Actually, I think uh, Mr. Kennedy was fifth grade. Now that I think about it, it was Mr. Trinkline was, was fourth. Um... So, walking into the door each day, I was generally, you know, not dreading it too bad. But once in a while, you'd come in and you'd sit down. And they would call the roll and you would say the Pledge of Allegiance and do the things. And then, you're wondering, what are we doing? What are we doing? And he would say, class, put away your books. Get out your pencils. We're going to have a pop quiz. <laughs> and, you know, your heart starts thumping and you're like, oh, man, a pop quiz, a test, an unexpected test. Well, in this episode of Mando University News on page two, it says copyright 2007. So this is over 12 years old. I stuck a pop quiz in. So let me read this to you and go through the questions of the pop quiz. I think it's good to periodically test yourself. And this, this test really revolves around basic music theory knowledge that would be applicable for bluegrass players and in particular mandolin players. There's a couple of mando-centric questions in here. 
but as we get to them, I'll explain how they clearly relate to all of the other bluegrass instruments. Just uh, see how good you do. You know, I'm gonna add, I'm gonna give you a pop quiz, ten questions, grade yourself, and I hope you do very well. This, these are not difficult questions, not at all. But if you miss every question, if you can't answer any of these questions, it doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you just don't know. You know, and I'm not gonna use the word ignorant. Uh, I'm gonna use the word nescient. It just means you're nescient which means you don't know. Uh, ignorant, uh, I think, is used incorrectly. I talked about this in a podcast a long time ago. Ignorant means you do know or you could know, but you refuse to, <laughs> to acknowledge that. Like, I know this is wrong, but I do it anyway. You know, <laughs> That's ignorance. You're ignoring the truth. You're ignoring the facts. You know? that, that's, that's what true ignorance is, ignorance. What we're talking about here is nescience, which is, there's no way I could possibly even know about that. And because, you know, nobody has ever told me the names of the chromatic scale. In fact, I've never even heard of a chromatic scale. I don't know what a B minor seventh chord is. I never even heard of that. How could I possibly know that? that that's what nescience is. So if that's you, don't feel bad. Not knowing doesn't mean you're stupid. Not knowing me just means simply you don't know. And what I'm trying to make the case for is that if you know these things, they're useful. They're not absolutely necessary to be a good bluegrass musician. There are plenty of good bluegrass musicians who don't know much about any of this stuff. But many of them make up for it by their astounding uh, gifts at being able to physically play and their other senses of musicality. In other words, you might not be gifted in that way. You may not be Mozart or Chris Thiele. Or you may not have the time to dedicate it to, to uh, that they have dedicated towards you know, improving their craft. You may not have that time. So, theory can be beneficial because it can build up your abilities in a different way. In other words, physical capabilities are important, musicality, uh, practice time. Oh, there's a lot of factors that go into, and emotional things that go into what kind of music you produce. Well, you might be short on this thing and a little short on that thing, but Anybody, even if you can't play a note on an instrument, could learn some of this basic music theory, and that might help you play better. So that's why the pop quiz, and why I'm always encouraging people, learn a little something about basic music theory, scales, chords, uh, you know, uh, chord progressions, how are, how are chords constructed, things like this, because... That might be just the, the thing you need to help you understand a little bit more about what you're doing. And especially carries, carries over heavily into the world of improvisation, which bluegrass, let's face it, bluegrass is hillbilly jazz. It is an improvisational form of music. When you, when you take your break at a jam, nobody's expecting you to play the break out of the book. 
I mean, if you do that, that's fine. But they're, they're not expecting you to do that. They want to hear what you got to play, what you got to play on this song. They want to hear your thing. That's improv. Even if you spent six months devising that at home and it's your solo that you play on this particular tune, the way you play Wagner, or the way you play Jack Diamonds, the way you play Old Joe Clark, the way you play Rawhide, the way you play Earl's Breakdown. You might have devised it instantaneously on the spot, or you may have devised it over months of practicing and devising and deciding. That's just slow improv. I've, I've said before, tune composition and solo composition is just slow, low-pressure improvisation. But all of that is helped by some theory knowledge. So let's have the pop quiz, and the class is like, oh, man, Bummer. I thought he might talk the whole period. He might, he might talk, and if the bell rings, we get out of this test. The bell hasn't rung yet, so if you have a pencil, you might want to grab it. Actually, I'm going to give you the answer of each question as we go. So, question number one. This is truly a no-brainer. Well, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer if you know this stuff. It's not a no-brainer if you don't. Question number one, class. How many notes are found in the G7 chord? And what are they? Simple question. How many notes are found in a G7 chord? And what are they? Give you a chance to think about it. If you know this stuff, you would have already rattled them off. You probably already said them in your mind or out loud. I'll tell you. Here are the notes of the G7 chord. G, B, D, F. G, B, D, F. That's it. I'm not going to explain why they are. If you, if you want to learn this, it's really simple. For banjo players, get my book, The Flint Hill Scrolls. For mandolin players, get Mandolin Masterclass. And you'll, you'll be able to easily do all this stuff. There wouldn't be a question on here that you couldn't answer if you read and understood those books. Question number two, class. What three notes make up an F major triad? Hmm. Think about it. F, A, C. That's it. F, A, C. That's the F major triad, which is the same thing as saying F major chord. I just threw that word in just to see if you knew what it was. Number three, class. And this is for mandolin players only. If you go from any open string to the next higher open string, and I mean higher in pitch, if you go from any open string to the next higher open string, what interval have you played? So by that I mean if you played your fourth string and then you followed it by the third string. What interval is that? The answer is it is a fifth. It's an interval of a fifth. And that means that the upper note, the higher note, the higher pitch note, is the fifth note of the major scale based upon the lower note. 
So, you know, if you hit the G string and you play the major scale up to the fifth note, that'll be the same as your third string, D. So it's a musical fifth. If you played them together, you would say that you're playing a harmony of a fifth. If you play them in sequence, you'd say you're playing an interval of a fifth. Mandolins are tuned in fifths, progressing upwards. Guitars are not. Guitars are tuned in fourths, with the exception of the B string, and it is actually tuned a third higher. Uh, so that's why I said this is for mandolin players only, and I could have said fiddle players also. All right. Question four, class. If the song, if a song is in the key of A, what is the one chord? Simple. <laughs> That's like too easy. But you may not know the number system. The answer is, of course, the one chord is A. If you're in the key of A, the one chord is A. I always used to tell my students when they were learning the essentials of the number system, referring to chord progressions as numbers, by the numbers, and I've got some videos about that. It's, that is all described in both those books I talked about. That just think this way. When you're playing a song in a certain key, you're always playing it in the key of one. You're in the key of one. It doesn't matter if it's B or C sharp or D. You're in the key of one. That's a simple way to think about it. So the one chord in the key of A is A. You know, and to learn the number system, basically you just have to figure out what are the other chords in that key, which is all explained in those books. Question five, class. We're still on these chord numbers. What is the seven flat chord in the key of A? So you're in the key of A. You're thinking in terms of numbers. What's the seven flat chord? It's G. It's G major. That's the answer. Won't tell you why. It's in the books. But you should know that. We use it all the time. When you play Little Maggie, let's say you're playing Little Maggie in the key of A. You're going from A to G, back to A, E, A. A, down to G, A, E, A. Well, when you're jumping down to G, you're playing the seven flat chord. That's what you're doing. You're playing one, seven flat, one, five, one. All right, number six, class. In the key of C, this is going to be a little more involved here. In the key of C, what chords are to be played if the progression is one, two minor, four, five, one. One, two minor, four, five, one. That's the chord progression. That's the order of the chords. And then I'm saying, okay, we're in the key of C. What are those actual chords by their letter names? Key of C. One, two minor, four, five, one. Well, here's the answer. They are C major, D minor, F major, G major, C major. C, D minor, F, G 
see. That's a one, two minor, four, five, one progression. <laughs> and when you can rattle this stuff off, won't you feel in intelligent and smart? And you will be, or you'll be smarter, <laughs> or more informed, or more conversant. Um, and this is really valuable. You know, if the musicians you play with, especially when you have a mix of people who use capos and a people and people who don't. Or when you have a mix of, let's say you have a bass player, and he's a really competent jazz player, but he's not really into bluegrass so much. I guarantee you, that dude will know the number system. But if you don't know it, it's not a useful communicating language. If you can look at him and go, that's a 6-2-5-1 progression right there, buddy, and he'll go cool and play it. You know? But if you only know things by the letter names, you know, that's E-A-D-G, you know. Oh, and by the way, I'm using a capo on the third fret, which makes those, and you see how it starts getting complicated. But if we all think in terms of the numbers, it's a snap, because we're all playing in the key of one, okay? Question seven. And I hope you're doing very well on this test. Despite the fact that I would make more money if you're doing very poorly, because then you might want to go purchase the Flint Hill Scrolls or Mandolin Masterclass. Or download my Chords by the Numbers video lesson. That would be good, too. Um, question seven. Which fret on the mandolin, and I will insert it is also true on guitar, banjo, dobro, it's not true on dulcimer. I'm not going to tell you why but uh, today. But Which fret on the mandolin slash banjo slash guitar? Which fret divides the length of the string in half? So if you measured from the nut to the bridge, the halfway point in terms of length will be hovering over a particular fret. And we call the frets by numbers, you know, going from the nut towards the bridge, first fret, second fret, third fret, fourth fret, fifth fret. Which fret is it? That's my question. It's very simple. Which fret is the halfway point? Answer, 12th fret. The 12th fret is the halfway point. Question eight. The distance... Ooh, this one's a little more complicated. You put these in to separate the... I was going to say separate the men from the boys, but... That's a highly sexist comment. So let's say you put this in to separate the geniuses from the dunderheads. Question eight. The distance from the nut to the seventh fret is what fraction of the overall string length? So the distance from the nut to the seventh fret is what fraction of the overall string length. Now we already just said the distance from the nut to the twelfth is one half the string length. So my question is, what fraction of the string length is the nut to the seventh fret? It is a fraction. Now you could get a ruler, you could measure from the nut to the bridge in let's say millimeters, divide by three, and you would have your location of the seventh fret because the answer is it is one third the distance. The seventh fret is one third of the way 
towards the bridge. And for extra credit, where would be the two-thirds mark? You figure that one out on your own. And by the way, if you divide a string in half, there's a magical little nodal point there uh, that produces a harmonic. And you've probably already tried this and know this, that if you lightly touch a string at the halfway point and pluck it, and then get your finger off the string, you will produce a harmonic pitch. Banjo players call them chimes. That is one octave above the sound of the open string because your little fingertip there has divided the wave in half and caused the upper harmonic to be more prominent than the fundamental, which is the entire length of the string. So there's a harmonic nodal point located right there at the 12th fret because it's the halfway point of the string. Well, harmonics also appear if you divide the string length in, in half or in third, in thirds, divided in thirds, that's your seventh fret, and there's a harmonic right there at the seventh fret. You can divide the string in fourths. Take the total length of the string, divide it into four sections, and you will find harmonics at each of those points. And of course, the 12th fret is one of those points as well. You could continue this dividing the string into fifths, into sixths, sevenths, eighths, ninths, tenths, to infinity and beyond if you wanted to. But the strongest ones are divide the string in half, divide the string in thirds, divide the string in fourths. There is one if you divide the string in fifths. This is a bizarre one. If you divide the length of the string by five, you'll find that it actually doesn't line up with one of your frets. There's a harmonic there, and it's just behind the fourth fret, just to the left of the fourth fret, closer to the nut, just barely behind it. There's a harmonic there that is produced by dividing the string in, into five parts. And guess what? This is what's really fascinating, is that harmonic is not in tune with the 12 notes of your chromatic scale that are embedded into the fret locations of your instrument, the equal temperament. Just, sorry, just doesn't work out. It's not in tune with the notes of the equal tempered scale. So you can play that harmonic, and it's close, it's close, but it's, it's pretty flat you know, compared to the equal tempered note that we're used to. Anyway, I've talked some about harmonics in some of the other podcasts and so on, but I just thought, you know, might be good to put a tough one in there. The distance from the nut to the seventh fret is one third of the overall string length. Question nine, don't worry class, we're almost done. And your next, uh, let's see, next period you have recess followed by lunch. And then we're going to have a fire drill. Question nine. In standard tuning, how many different pitches can be played on a mandolin up to and including the 15th fret? This is clearly for mandolin players only. So we're assuming that you only have 15 frets on your mandolin because once you get above 15, mandolins do vary. Some have 
20, some have 22, you might have 24. You might have 19, I don't know. So let's just assume that you don't have any frets beyond fret 15. So the question is, and it's really just to see how diligent a person would be in doing all these little calculations and thinking, you know, trying to get you thinking, that's all I'm doing. So we have the open strings all the way up to the 15th fret. So the question is, what are the total number of pitches that you could play on that mandolin? So let's take them one string at a time. If you're thinking about the first string only, you could play open through all the way up to the 15th fret. So that's 16 different pitches that you can play on your first string. Then, if you move down to the second string, you probably already know that if you play the seventh fret on any string on the mandolin, you will be getting the same pitch as the next higher open string. So we can only go nut up through the sixth fret. Otherwise, we're duplicating notes. All you mandolin people should know that. And by the way, you could do this same calculation for banjo or for guitar or anything, but you're going to end up with a different total because you have a different number of strings and a different tuning sequence. But for mandolin players, on the second string, you'll be able to get seven additional lower notes because you can play open up through the sixth fret. You can do the same again on the third string, open through the sixth, and on the fourth string, open through the sixth. So that means you'll get seven notes on the fourth, seven on the third, seven on the second. That's 21 notes on those strings, plus you got 16 on the first string. So 16 plus 21 is 37. The answer is 37. Now, why would anybody even want to know that? Well, I don't know. I don't know, other than just to see if your, see if your brain works. Maybe that might be a reason. Uh, but just by calculating this, it reminds you of where the duplication of notes begins on each string. I know that once I hit 7th fret, I'm, I could be playing that note on, on a higher string. It also kind of gives you a relative uh, comparison between the overall gamut of notes available to you on your instrument. You know, what is your lowest possible note? What is your highest possible note? I can play anything in between here, but I can't play beyond that. Where if you sit down at a piano, piano, everybody knows, has 88 different pitches. Well, you, mandolin player, up through the 15th fret, only have 37. So you don't have the wide range of notes that the uh, piano player does. Bass player, same. Everybody's got their limitations. This is a way to discover your limitations. And you might want to calculate what are the total number of different pitches you can play on your instrument because maybe you've got 20 frets or 22 frets. Okay, final question. I'll, I'll let you go, class. Question 10, the F pentatonic scale includes what notes? So what are the notes of the F pentatonic scale? They are F, G, a, C, D. Very useful in improvising. Playing pentatonic scales is a great improvising tool. I'm not going to explain that. It is explained in Mandolin Masterclass. 
Just take my word for it, learning pentatonic scales is easier than learning major scales because major scales contain seven notes and the pentatonic scale only contains five. So wouldn't that be simpler, you know? And you can play all sorts of tunes like Amazing Grace and things like that. Um, simple Gifts, things old, old, many of these old, old tunes, the melodies are contained fully within just a pentatonic scale, five note scale. And so you learn that and you'll be learning your way around to find the melodies of many of these old, old and new tunes too. You can pull out a Grisman record and just hear all sorts of jamming on pentatonic scales. So once again, the notes of the F pentatonic scale are F, G, A, C, D. And you should be able to find the pentatonic scale beginning on any note. And if you go to those two textbooks, Mandolin Masterclass and the Flint Hill Scrolls for Banjo Players, you too will be able to plot out the locations of the pentatonic scales. All right, class dismissed. Talk to you next week.